0: Welcome back to the Dakota Town Hall podcast, and uh, today is actually the day before Election Day that we're recording this, and uh, I want to quickly thank our sponsors, uh, Elevate Rapid City, Uh, and then this is all brought to you by Home Slice Media Group. And uh, sliding into home here on the very last uh, little bit of the campaign is Senator Mike Rounds. Thanks for
1: joining us, sir. Appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. This has been a really weird campaign season, but... Feels good to be able just to visit with folks, even if it's got to be on a virtual basis rather than face to face. Well, and then I would imagine
0: this is—I mean, this might ch- change the campaigns of to
1: come, kind of, right? It might, but I got to tell you, most of us would much rather prefer to campaign in person. I mean, we wouldn't be in politics if we didn't like visiting with folks. <laughs> sure. So, this one, I mean, this has been frustrating because you want to get out, you want to get a message out. You want to be able to share, you know, the direction you want to go, the challenges you see out there. And yet the only way you can really do it is like through the podcast or through, uh, you know, virtual town halls. We did, I think 13 or 14 town halls. And then um, a, a lot of uh, just contacts with different groups, whether it be veterans groups or farming groups and so forth. But, um, Yes, it's been a challenge, and, and it's just kind of you're kind of making it on the fly. Well, I think the uh, I think the
0: Senate getting really good at Zoom
1: meetings has probably been a little helpful, right? Well, you know that's interesting because uh, for our formal side, which is like for me, if I'm talking to veterans or if I'm doing it on the formal side, not the not the the uh, campaign side, I'm prohibited from using Zoom, and because of the security issues surrounding Zoom and oh, the fact no, that Ken, that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, Zoom is, is not recommended. We've, we've just uh, stayed away from Zoom, and, and in fact, they don't even have the guidelines out yet to put the correct protocols in place, because so much of it goes through systems that are in a, a different country, and uh, anything you do on Zoom
0: is shared with the world. Yeah, that's a, that's a lesson everybody needs to learn, Not just not, not just campaigners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sir, let's get right into these topics, shall we? You bet. Okay, just for everybody who is listening to this, as a reminder, everybody, uh, all the candidates get roughly the same questions. From time to time, I will throw out follow-ups. This is all long form, and this is uh, not really uh, necessarily a gotcha interview for everybody. It's our hope that people will listen to both sides and then uh, vote for the candidate they think most resonates with them. So here we go, sir. We'll get into it. Uh, What aspects of ACA do you think are great for the state of South Dakota, and then what aspects would you like to see repealed?
1: Well, before the Obamacare, the ACA, came into being, we had a pretty good health care system in South Dakota to begin with. We had group insurance with 17 companies competing within the state. We had 13 companies offering individual health insurance. We had already put in place and had successfully implemented a guaranteed renewability and guaranteed portability, meaning once you were in the system... um, you couldn't, you know, even if you had pre-existing conditions, they couldn't stop you from moving from one plan to the next. And that had worked successfully since the mid-1990s. We had also included provisions that if you were a student, you could stay on your parent's plan until age 29. So when Obamacare came in, number one, the prices went up. And number two, the coverages for people that were, like, students and so forth, um, going to advanced, you know, classes such as going to med school or whatever they were restricted back to age 26 rather than going through age 29. So I didn't see a whole lot of advantage for a lot of people in South Dakota. In fact, when the prices started going up, I talked to a friend of mine the other day. He went from $271 a month for him and his family to now uh, paying $2,300 per month for himself and his family. And he went from lower deductibles up to now a $3,500 deductible. So I don't have a lot of good to say about Obamacare. I do know that some people say, well, but what about those people that have pre existing conditions? And I can just tell you, when the time comes, we already know that we can put other plans in place that will give us guaranteed renewability, guaranteed portability. So for people with pre existing conditions, we can take care of those guarantees in the future as well. And all of our proposals we'll have that in it. But we do have plans that have already been shown by the by the uh, uh, a Congressional Budget Office would save up to 40% on your insurance premiums if we would go back to state programs rather than a national federal program. And so for me, I don't have a lot of good about Obamacare that I like at all. And I really think we could do it for a lot less money if we get the federal government farther away from it. Having a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., uh, run health care just simply does not work. Well, let's stay on health
0: care for a bit, then. Um, do you... A, a quick follow-up, and I know I know it's an election year, specifically the day before election, people do want some partisanship, but how do you envision that topic being less weaponized in the future, from right or left? You
1: know, I, I, I think part of it is that um, once the Supreme Court makes a ruling, and they will probably the middle part of next year on uh, whether or not Obamacare is unconstitutional and whether or not parts of it are unconstitutional and so forth. They'll start the hearings on November 10th. That's going to play a huge role as far as whether or not we get any uh, support across the aisle for something different. But if, if we can simply go back to allowing states to be able to do, provide group insurance coverages, where they can compete with one another in terms of what's covered, what's not covered, and so forth. And then go one step farther, and that is to take the individual plans for folks that normally have a really difficult time getting it, except under Obamacare right now, and allow the states to put together a pooled arrangement where we spread the costs of those uninsurable individuals over the entire population. We already know that that would significantly reduce the premiums that are out there. And so it's going to take the courts to probably send a message that certain things are not acceptable. I would really be surprised if they found the entire act unconstitutional. So it'll be a matter of, can we find folks agreeable that there's a better way, uh, if we can get it back, to have, allowing the states to do some cool arrangements and I think that's what it's going to take. I'm, going to, there, I'm there, going to
0: remember that answer for when we're not in an election year, so I can ask it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but but I, I, you know, we had we had some folks last time around that actually were, were prepared to work across the aisle, but then it became a campaign issue in 2018, yep. and that shut down all negotiations.
0: Well, let's stick on this just for a little longer. How, and, and, well, how does and should Medicare fit into the future of the health care systems? And I'm more talking of I guess, specifically to South Dakotans when I ask that question.
1: Yeah, look, Medicare is not going to go away, but what we do have to do is to make sure that the trust accounts that, pick, that pay for it, that they're properly funded, and that Obamacare quits taking money out of it. I don't know if people realize you or not, but they use Medicare to subsidize Obamacare. That's got to stop. And so as we move forward, I think as we eliminate Obamacare as a, as a, as a withdrawal of funds, we have to make sure that the trust accounts that pay for uh, Medicare, remember, that's a contract. Individuals start paying into Medicare when they're really young, as soon as they start getting a job. And those folks that pay into it pay not just into Social Security, but they pay into Medicare as well. But over a period of time, you built up funds in that trust account that supposedly should be used to offset your health care costs. So when you start talking about some people saying, well, we're going to have Medicare for all, that's not fair to the people that have been paying in for years and years and years. Now they're going to start using their trust fund to pick up for benefits for other people. That doesn't make sense to me at all. I think that's so, a, I mean, but, I, you know, that, I think
0: that would be a fair statement. Whether I was a, interviewing a Democrat or Republican senator, I think that would be a fair statement on either side of the fence.
1: Yeah, but here here's the other part of it. Um, Mitt Romney had put together a proposal that I was one of the first supporters on. It's called the Trust Act. I think it's really important that we talk about several of the trust accounts that are at the federal level that are going broke: the Highway Trust Fund, the Social Security Trust Fund. Uh, and and the Medicare trust fund. Now, there's a couple different trust funds in each of those, but they're basically all going to be broke in the next 10 to 12 years. And what we would like to do is say, look, let's have a bipartisan approach to this thing. Republicans, Democrats, House and Senate come together, look, and analyze with the agreement that we're going to find a way to make these actually viable long-term, and then uh, provide it with what they call an expedited process in advance, saying, Let's agree. Let's not exclude revenue enhancement. Let's not exclude management changes. But let's figure a way so that we can go back to people and honestly tell them the money they're putting into the trust accounts are going to be there and that the trust accounts will be, will be there when they need them and not always have this threat of, well, it's going to go broke. We don't, we don't put money out of the general fund into it. And I, I think it's time we actually do that. It's never been done. It needs to be done. The last time it was actually seriously considered was back when Ronald Reagan was president. And this would provide an expedited process so that Republicans and Democrats would both be responsible for reviewing it and uh, coming up with an, a, you know, either a yes or a no up or down. We want to take the uh, recommendations of this, of this committee, this bipartisan committee, Republicans and Democrats, equal numbers on both sides, and see if we can't fix all three of those trust fund entities.
0: Well, I think I mean that's. Those are all great answers. I think we've spent enough time on on the healthcare, and let's get to one of the elephants in the room. Um, I I don't I don't mean this to be as binary as it is, but it's kind of how I'm ending up asking everybody who uh, we're interviewing here. It's a little bit of what should we keep doing right, and what should we make changes with as far as COVID goes. And that's a real general way to start that question. But let's just get into it that way. Well,
1: no, number one, I I, I think. When it started coming around, I, I went into all the classified discussions and the private confidential discussions that uh, the Centers for Disease Control and others put on. I don't think I've missed any of them that have been offered to us. But I can tell you, uh, when they first started talking about this, a lot of us said, this is for real. This is one that you need to take seriously. And I have continued to say that from day one. I think all elected officials should continue to push the fact that we can, um, while we're we're going after vaccines and and ways in which we can reduce the, uh, the the impacts, we really need to be wearing our masks. And I don't think we've done a really good job of being consistent in that message. We've got to continue to do that. And I wish all of our elected officials would say that. The other piece is <clears throat> this really is dangerous. It is if you're over the age of seventy, and you get it, your mortality rate runs about. Seven percent. That's not much better than playing Russian roulette with a a, a revolver. And so that's the first part. The second part on it is um, the the president did it right when he said um, we've got to limit the amount of people coming in from China because that's where this started from. And and, and he got on it and he did a good job of that. I did send him a letter uh, and I asked him to open up the emergency operations center for FEMA. Um, because it hadn't been opened in what I thought was a timely fashion, within two days of the time that I sent him the letter, they opened it, and then under the Defense Production Act, he did several items, but he did not originally allow for our food processors to be covered by that, so that they could get emergency access to PPP or, or the PPEs and so forth for protecting their employees. I sent a letter to him, and within two days they responded and included those those foods. Safety entities in there as well, so I think he's been responsive when he's gotten good advice or when they've recognized that there is something else they need to do. But I really think the the important item right now that I think is still missing is testing. Right now, you've got five dollar Abbott Lab tests that could be across the entire country. If Abbott Labs can't do them quick enough, they should be required to license the ability to other laboratories to do those same to those do those same tests. These are the. They cost five bucks, and they are uh, available. The results are available in fifteen minutes. We've still got major healthcare organizations that are spending one hundred and forty-five dollars a piece for their for their tests, and it takes two days to get the lab results back. Did you? I'm sorry. I just want to clarify. Did you say one hundred and forty-five dollars? One hundred and forty-five dollars per test, and it takes two days to get them. So why haven't we cut through the crap? and got the Abbott tests out and made them, if if they don't have the capacity to make them fast enough, they should be required to license them to other entities to make them and to get this going. And we've known about it, uh, and I've challenged several of our hospital organizations. We're actually working through and asking and inquiring about why this has not already been done. We need uh, a 15-minute test if we're really going to get this thing under control. And if that has not been done, we should be able to do a better job on it.
0: Do you envision, and this is, you know, politics, win, lose, draw out of it, do you envision some sort of bill passing, uh, some sort of stimulus package passing yet in 2020?
1: I don't know. Um, I thought it would happen uh, the first couple weeks after the election, because, very honestly, Speaker Pelosi uh, has been talking as if she's going to make a deal, but none of us really believe that she would ever make a deal that could benefit the president. This is an election year. She's playing politics cold, hard, straightforward, and she had no interest in allowing the president to go out on the campaign trail and say he made a deal he was working across the aisles, so that part does not surprise me that we haven't done it yet, but i I did expect that after the election, there was a strong possibility of getting something done right now. I'm not sure if they win the if the Democrats win the presidency, I think they may very well decide that they're not going to do anything until after they control the presidency, particularly if they're successful in taking back the Senate. If that is the case, they'll just look at it and say, we're going to do it our own way. We don't have to negotiate with Republicans, which is kind of the attitude right now. Now, i got to go back to one thing on the previous question that I probably should have said as well. We did a very good job of putting together warp speed, which is where we accelerated uh, the development of vaccines. We're going to do this in, 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 in a time frame that has never been done before, for starting out with a novel um, uh, virus and getting all the way to having hundreds of millions of doses available in a very short period of time. We put money aside and, and we, we chose uh, to begin with four basic vaccine possibilities that the scientists told us had a real high probability of being successful. We started making the vaccines even before the clinical trials are complete. We're not cutting any corners in the clinical trials Unlike normally, like with the flu vaccine, where they test it, make sure it's safe, and then they start developing it because they don't want to waste any money at the company level if it's not good, we decided we would spend the money, $10 billion, that's $2.5 billion, for every 100 million doses. And we said we will put the money up front, start making the doses even while we're testing them. The good news is, is if the tests are complete and they're safe and it's viable and it's workable, we'll have millions of doses available to be distributed within days. On the other hand, if it's not proven to be safe or effective, then we'll have to destroy those vaccines, and it will mean that we've spent two and a half billion million. But the payback, just in terms of opening up the economy and in saving people's lives, is huge. So for us, the $10 billion investment in Warp Speed was one of the best things that we did.
0: Well, and I think that's one of these things that's hard with a certainly a something as complicated as COVID. Uh, I you know, I th- I think we all want answers immediately in a social media post and this is one of those things that I think everyone needs to find some empathy and patience on although I don't think a lot, there's a lot of people probably talking to legislators and senators about empathy to back towards you guys right now this year at least.
1: Yeah, no, look, we're we're, we're just we're really trying to get this done. I I tell people this, it, as we control the pandemic, we'll get this economy rolling, but we should not destroy the economy um, uh, while we're working on, on, on saving lives. So let's use that common sense the good Lord gave us here in South Dakota. Let's wear our masks. Whenever you're inside, you're going into a building with other people, wear the mask. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't and then, hurt. it's not a it's you know,
0: not a, it's not a war on anybody's freedom. I appreciate you taking that <laughs> position. And I rarely do yeah. I want to take positions in these interviews, but I do I think that's just a common sense safety one. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and, and look, wear the mask, but at the same time, when you're out and you're a farmer, you're a rancher, you're, you know, you're working the field, you don't need to wear a mask then.
0: Right. You don't need to, out- no one's asking you to wear a mask while you're throwing bales.
1: Correct. But what we are saying is is look, you're gonna go inside a building, there's a possibility the people that you're gonna meet with might have it, or if you picked it up someplace, you might be giving it to somebody else. And and it's not a matter of young people giving it to each other where the problem is. It's a matter that the young people then parents yeah. and grandpas. And yeah. and that's really the threat we've got here. And let's just save those lives. And and right now, for the next couple of months, uh socially distancing, wearing a mask will save lives. And We've got to get these uh, these therapeutics in. They are coming. Remdesivir is a good example of one that's been developed. It's what President Trump was taking. It does make a difference if you get it at the right time. And we've got to have as much of that being developed as possible for those people that do get this and then they're at risk. So we've got more work to do, but we are moving in the right direction. We're going to get through it. But let's save some lives. Wear the mask when you're inside. You're going into a building. You're going into a store. Well, let's, I mean,
0: just in the interest of time, I mean, we could do an hour just on COVID alone, which I'm sure you have been doing over and over, but let's get through some of our other topics. Sure. Um, okay, so let, I mean, it's a—it's an election year, so we're going to talk about national debt, obviously. What's What would be the top things in your uh, re-elect starting day one, what we can do to lower some of the national
1: debt? Okay, hey, we've already started on it, but... Um... I'll tell you, we've got to have a good, strong economy in order to reduce the national debt because you've got to have the revenue coming in in order to pay for those things that you are expected to pay for, defense, and to actually make payments on those safety net programs that are out there today. I don't think people realize that that, um, the system since 1974 has been that uh, Congress votes on about 30% of what we actually spend. The rest of it's all on autopilot. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest on the debt are all paid automatically. And that amounts to about 70% of what we spend every single year, not including a year like this where we did an emergency, you know, uh, pandemic relief bill. So this is an anomaly this year, but nonetheless, it added to the the debt. Two things we've got to do. We've got to actually vote on everything that we're spending, not just on what they call that part of the general bill, which is (laughs) discretionary spending, (laughs) which is defense spending. Um, And then the other thing we've got to do is uh, I really think the Trust Act, which is what I talked about earlier, this is the one that would create a congressional committee specifically tasked with developing legislation to restore and strengthen these trust funds, which right now we're Pulling money out of the general fund to put into, and I think that's huge. If we want to do what we ought to have a long-term plan on how we're going to actually pay and make the payments that we promised, and then we have a contract with on Social Security recipients and Medicare recipients. Both of those, they've got a contract with the federal government. They put the money in over the years. That money that's going in there, it's not enough to pay for what the federal government has promised to pay the people that are expecting that to be there when they get a retirement age. It's got to be fixed. So those are the two primary issues. The other part on this, honestly, I look, I if you take a look at the federal bureaucracy we've got right now, uh, I'm still a believer that we should cut back on the programs that should be run at the state level, allow the individual states to decide whether or not they want to do it. I'll tell you something else that I think we have to do. I'm still a believer that the, that the U.S. Department of Education should be eliminated, um, and and it should be, those responsibilities should be sent back to the state. We should put some money from the federal government into education, but we ought to send it back to the block grant and get rid of the bureaucrats that run the Department of Education. Um, We just simply don't need them looking over and following through and chasing down our state departments of Education and our local school boards. Do you More worry about,
0: about – sorry, I'm going to throw a follow-up in no. there. Do you worry about yeah. any unfunded mandates at that point, then? That would be the opposition's claim back to you a bit.
1: Well, part of what it is is, is that you just simply say, look, if, if, if you're going to say that we expect the states to do the following items, then you got to fund them. And you put that in, but you send the money back to the states. Uh, and, and and so for me personally, I think as much of those decisions and as much of the actual operations for. Per- education and we can get back to the state and local level, the better off we are. Now, a good example, um, uh, you, you look at special education, that is an unfunded mandate that went back to the states. And right now, I don't know that we even pay 20% of the total costs involved at the federal level. But what we should do is simply say, look, we're going to put that into a block grant. We're going to get rid of the federal uh, employees on it. We're going to send it back to the states. Now we're going to expect that you guys are going to handle special education, but I'll bet you we could put a whole lot more into special ed if we weren't paying for a bureaucracy that is huge well, let's pivot that then to let's stick on federal government and states
0: a little bit. The next question is about small businesses, certainly in south dakota it's been there's been easier years to operate small businesses where in the where in the federal government side can we make it easier for businesses small businesses in south Dakota
1: Well most of them a lot of them uh, particularly in the hospitality industry, have not yet recovered from this pandemic and the shutdowns. And remember, in South Dakota, we never really shut down. But in a lot of the other states that are, uh, uh, quite frankly, under the control of Democrat governors and so forth, they basically shut them down. And a lot of those folks will not come back into business. But we did have the PPP program, the, the payroll protection plan. Small businesses benefited from that, where we said you know, 75 to 80 percent of what we're going to send over will forgive all of it to you. But 75 to 80 percent of what you get needs to go into your payroll. And then that helped get people through. I do think we need to do an extension of PPP, uh, get it into next year until this economy starts to roll as as, um, um, you know, the the uh, pandemic as we get it under control with vaccines and so forth. But that's the first part. I think we need another PPP program. The second thing that I think we need to do is we've got to take a look at what we've already done with regard to the tax programs that we did back, uh, you know, we, we had passed a, a, a bill in which we actually changed section 199A, which was the small business deduction. And that was a huge benefit. It was one of the NFIB's hugest priorities. And uh, we put that in there because what it allowed is for more deductibility for small pass-through businesses. We want to make sure that that's working the way that it's supposed to, and it might be an option to actually do some additional with regard to small businesses. The other piece that we can do, we've got to get the federal bureaucracy out of the way of small businesses. Right now, if, if you get a letter from the IRS, you get a letter from the Environmental Protection Agency or from the Department of Ag, you're going to have your hands full, and what these folks do they get paid by the hour, they get paid a salary. They really don't care how long it takes, but if they think that, that they've got something in a small business, small business owner just literally doesn't have a chance in hell. And we've got to stop that. Um, we're actually looking, I, I've actually got a proposal right now for a lot of our farmers and ranchers. Um, when they go in and they get accused of like, like uh, uh, farming through a wetland or whatever, sure. We're, we we put together legislation That'll actually give some protections for our farmers. We got a case right now that we're working through where the federal government, the Department of Ag, actually went back and decided that they would backdate a determination of a wetland two years. And this, it was never on the maps of the wetland. They, they went to the farmer and said, Hey, you're farming through a wetland. You make changes in that area. You've got a ditch in there. Farmer, the guy wasn't even his land. He was just operating it he said, well, it's not a wetland. It's not on a map or anything else. He said, well, we've decided it is, and you did that two years ago, so now we're going to ding you. And they went back and they made him pay back his farm program benefit from two years earlier. He doesn't really have much to, to say about it. So we're going to put in kind of a bill of rights for farmers. And I think the same kind of a bill of rights for small businesses is probably the direction we got to go, because a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., doesn't need an excuse for why they beat up on small businesses, but they're sure not afraid to do it. Let's go through some
0: things that I think are pretty easy answers. I don't think anyone's going to have any you know big surprises coming from you on some of the um, you know single issue voting topics like Second Amendment choice in life. I, I believe everyone's going to know your stance pretty.
1: Um, yeah, look, true i true on both those. We're, we're strong on Second Amendment, the, the right to bear arms is in the Constitution. It's one of the things that our founding fathers, when they first put the Constitution together, they tried to pass it without having that Bill of Rights, the first 10, 10, 10 amendments. And what they found out was is people back in the states didn't, they weren't going to trust the federal government. And we shouldn't trust them now. And so absolutely, we've got to have and we've got to continue to protect Second Amendment. There are some people on the left that believe they know better and they'd like to reinterpret the Second Amendment. And the right to bear arms is there. We have to continue to protect it. And there are people that live in other states that didn't grow up around firearms. They don't understand them. They've got a different opinion on it. But the Constitution was written that way, and we've got to continue to protect our rights there. The other the other piece on this is with regard to life. Look, I'm I am pro-life. I believe abortion is wrong. I think we need to do everything we can to to stop abortions, and I think federal taxpayer dollars absolutely should never be used for abortion, and I continue to support what we call the Hyde Amendment, which is what Speaker Pelosi has been trying to take out of, and it's been one of the major stumbling blocks in actually getting additional pandemic relief. She put in the provisions in there that the Hyde Amendment would not apply to payments under under the uh, pandemic relief, intending it that way because she knew that pro life Republicans would never go along with it, and uh that wasn't in the first pandemic relief bill, but they put it in her proposal coming out of the house because they knew Republicans who were pro-life would never agree to it
0: um let's go you know i i, I we're just, I'm trying to wrap up so I can give you time for your one thirty let's do a couple more here um let's let's stick with uh immigration and borders this is really a few questions I'll try to throw them all out at once a little bit how can we improve the security of the of the border process what 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 needs to be improved there um, I mean that a little bit non campaigny is possible at least and then what should we do with the people that are in this country illegally now
1: you know really good and, and it is it's probably one of the more complicated challenges we've got I can share with you that, that back in in oh 2018 uh, Angus King who's an independent, and myself put together basically the first step in a comprehensive immigration reform package. Uh, It was known as the Rounds King. And in the Senate, we got 54 votes on the floor of the Senate, by far the most votes of any immigration reform package since I've been in Congress. It included a permanent fix to DACA. Now, DACA is where President Obama had told these kids that were brought in by their parents. They brought them in illegally, but their kids didn't have much to say about it. The parents came in illegal and brought their kids with them. The kids don't know any any other country but, but America. They're going to school, they're going to college, they're serving in the military. and what we provided was a way for them to take what we call legal status. Um, it wasn't citizenship, but it was legal status. I still think that's the way to go. And it didn't block them from a, from looking at becoming citizens over a period of about seven to 12 years, but they'd have to go through the entire program. In addition, This allowed, and we had put in the bill, as a trade-off to that, that we would also put $25 billion, and it would have been authorized and appropriated to build the wall along our southern border and to put in protections on our northern border for those people that are bringing illegal drugs in on the northern border. We came within six votes of getting that passed. Um, We also did one more thing. In the bill, we broke for the first time ever what we call chain migration. That's where citizens and legal residents could sponsor a green card for their families back in another country. Okay, And we put that in here and said that's, that's where a lot of our people coming into the country right now were coming in. And this stopped that chain migration as a part of the deal. I really thought it was a good program, uh, and I think that's a good place to start in the future because um, these kids that came in, they're not going to be able to go back to a country. There's no place back there for them to go. And most people would agree that there's got to be a legal basis for doing it. Um, at the same time, the border, uh, that wall, it's not just a wall. It's actually electronic devices and funding so that we keep the border patrol out there. So that these guys that are, that are bringing in drug trap, you know, drugs, um, and, and they're basically bringing in individuals that don't belong here. Um, that wall does make it more difficult for them to do it. We've just got to make it more expensive for them. And finally, the last thing is, is we've got to be able to work with Mexico to stop these folks from Central America from coming into Mexico in the first place. That part of, of the, of the project that President Trump started has been working very well.
0: Is it a fair statement? This was my, I threw, a, I threw a follow-up to Dan on this, so I feel like I should throw one to you a little bit, and, and, it's, and it's a little bit the same question and opposite. My knock on immigration to the, to the campaigning of it all is I wish the Democrats, I, I guess I'm asking if this is a fair statement, I wish the Democrats would provide a little more common sense and a little less um, uh, emotional evocation of the deal, and I wish the Republicans would find it just an inch more empathy. Is that a fair statement to say to a Republican leader?
1: Yeah, it, it, it is, and, and, and yet I think what they're trying to do is to have you know the, the beginning basis for a long-term plan. We cannot have open borders, which is what the Democrats, the, the left-leaning Democrats, are purporting to, 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 to endorse. You can't have open borders. You can't just say, come on in and we'll take care of stuff. You can't have federal benefits going to people that are crossing the border illegally. You just simply can't do it. It's an enticement to continue to come into the United States. We have to have an organized, well-regulated immigration system. But I can also tell you, our country needs a legal immigration system that works. And Right now, for people that are, are you know, wanting to come in and work hard, they're being stopped from coming in because our quotas are being filled by family members coming in on chain migration and that's got to be, be, be modified. We, we can't continue to do it in that type of a of a process. So um, th- there is a, a middle ground that could be found. I thought we came a long way in what we proposed in 2018, and I'm hoping that that becomes a basis for something in the future. There are people that want to come here. They want to make it their country. They want to work hard. They want the next generation to also be here, and, and I And and I think we have to recognize we need them as part of our workforce if we want our economy to continue to grow and prosper. But we don't need people coming in here illegally who have to rely on the federal government and state government to to pay their benefits and, and basically subsidize them being here. Let's uh, wrap this up. Back
0: back at home, we've got uh, three ballot issues this year, um, and, and uh, I'm going to sneak these in at the end a little bit. And um, not again, not in a gotcha way, but I asked Dan, so I want to make sure I ask you. You feel like weighing in? For those of you maybe listening to this, this, is your first episode of Dakota Town Hall podcast tomorrow? There's three things ballot-wise we're voting for. Two are cannabis laws. One is a constitutional amendment. A One is Initiated Manager 26. One of those is recreational. One is medical. The other is sports betting here in South Dakota. Do you feel like taking a position on any of those three?
1: You know, I I didn't really take a position on the sports betting. I think everybody's kind of got to decide for themselves where they're at on that. But on the uh, the marijuana, uh, the cannabis issues, uh, I feel very, very strongly I voted no on both. And I voted no on both because, number one, I really do think that uh, for people that need the, the, uh, the, uh, the assistance. I'd much rather have the doctors and the Department of Health come through with appropriate uh, uh, chemicals and so forth that are found within the cannabis plant and to do it safely um, uh, And sec- with regard to the medical marijuana. But second, and this is very, very important. You should never put anything on cannabis or marijuana in the Constitution of the state of South Dakota. And that's what Amendment A does. It basically says, constitutionally, this is a constitutional right, and the legislature can't modify it, they can't make changes or anything else. You don't want that in the Constitution. And finally, even if you put it in the state constitution, it is still an illegal drug at the federal level. And for people to think, great, it's legal in South Dakota, it's still not legal at the federal level. And when you go to get a gun... Or you get to buy a gun, you've got to answer on that whether or not you're using this stuff. You may think it's legal, but if you're using it or if you ever get caught with this stuff, at the federal level, it will stop you from having a firearm. And uh, so.
0: Are you, uh, now, I, I could be wrong here, and I apologize if I am. You're on the banking committee, yes, sir? Yes, I am. Are you, is that the committee that will have the opportunity to reschedule that in the future?
1: It's. Really a good question, because right now what they've been trying to do, we've got banks out there that uh, would love to be able to finance or to be able to bank the uh, the cannabis industry in places like Colorado, California, and elsewhere, where they're dealing in a huge amount of cash, but they don't know what to do with the cash, so they're basically a cash trade. And when they put it into a bank, that bank puts itself in danger of violating federal law uh, as a secondary uh, facility-supporting these illegal activities at the federal level, and that has yet to be determined how they're going to come out on it. But, uh, yeah, we've had discussions about that, and I know uh, 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 in Colorado there's been a request to try to do something on it. We have not yet come up with an agreeable program, and that's Republicans and Democrats alike have had differences of opinion on that sure. in terms of crossing party lines. But right now, if you know, you don't want it. In, you don't want that as an amendment to the state constitution. You can't change it once that happens, unless you go back in and actually do another amendment to the state constitution. And you don't want cannabis and marijuana shops up and down Main Street, and having 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 um, casual marijuana being smoked just like cigarettes out in public parks and elsewhere in front of kids. You just simply don't want that to happen. So and I, I, mean,
0: and I, mean, I mean, I'm trying to be funny a little bit when I say this. Yeah. I'm not trying to make light of it, but I've got to bet tomorrow that more people are going to vote for medical cannabis than are going to vote for Donald Trump in South Dakota. A lot of votes over there,
1: man. Could be. But remember, it's just kind of like certain chemicals or, or pills that you want to get on the Internet or whatever. Now they'll have doctors that will talk to you on the Internet and get it. You're going to have the same thing when it comes to medical marijuana. It's not going to be a doctor in South Dakota approving this stuff. You're going to have folks across the Internet. They're going to be trying to get the approval there. You're going in with a doctor that will talk to you there. This is huge amounts of money coming into South Dakota to promote this, and it's because the cannabis industry is huge in the United States today. doesn't make it right, but nonetheless, they're the ones that are spending the money to bring it in because South Dakota is a cheap state in which to get something passed onto the statutes and also into the Constitution. This is a bad deal for South Dakota.
0: Well, I sure appreciate your candid answers, and that's kind of the list of questions I have for you. For those of you who are just listening, this is, of course, Senator Mike Rollins. He is up for re-election uh, tomorrow on the ballots. We're going to post this uh, right away today, and uh, well, we hope that you get to listen to uh, both episodes and, and make the decision. You feel that the candidate that most resonates with you. I do appreciate you coming on with us today, sir. And you have been, what's your election night plans? Are you... Um, are
1: are you holding up in a buck or seeing what happens or Yeah. We're very low key. This has been a, a very unusual time. it's it, like I say, we've been very careful. We're not gonna try to do any in th- any, any kind of a major event or anything like that. We're gonna be at home. We're gonna work our way through this. Gene and I have decided that I think the best thing we can do is set an example that um um you know we're 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 gonna just lay low for a couple of months. Uh I go to the events I need to, otherwise I'm doing doing 'em virtually. And, um, you know, I appreciate folks that are out there that are that have been supporting us and have worked hard to help get the message out that, um, you know, we want to continue to do this work in the future. But uh, I'll just tell you, there's a lot on the line this time, and, and part of it is, is is who's going to control the United States Senate. And with that, we'll determine, because as you're probably aware, Democrats have said they want Washington, D.C. to become a state. They've already passed it in the House. And uh, one thing that people should know is, is, you know, I absolutely disagree uh, with Washington D.C. becoming a state, and not everybody in South Dakota uh, feels the same way. And they got to know that if D.C. becomes a state, it means two more Democrat senators forever, and that's not a good sign.
0: You know, I would if you if uh, um, I'll let you go after this because I know you got to get going. I I I want to take this opportunity to remind these listeners: that you know, if you if if you're on social media reading a lot of this stuff and you're anticipating the election results. Um, I, I guess as long as I have a senator on the phone, I'm looking for a, an, an agreement here. Um, everybody keep your cool tomorrow night. Truth, truth always wills itself out, and maybe cable news and social media aren't the purest source of the, of the fountain of information. I think that's a fair statement. Hopefully you'll agree with me
1: on. Absolutely. And one more thing. We have had transfers of power and decision-making in our country And the one thing that separates us from other parts of the world is that we know that our elections are safe and that they are legal, and people need to take a deep breath and just work our way through it. I don't know that we will know who the president is tomorrow night. It may. On the other hand, it may take several days. And I'm pretty certain that we're not going to know who controls the United States Senate Maybe even and until January, when the runoffs in Georgia occur. So sure. This is going to take some patience, but people need to to recognize and expect that elected officials uh, will will offer um, you know solidarity in terms of the need to be responsible in our reactions to this election. I
0: think I think that's a great way to put it. Um... All right, let me just wrap up this interview here quick, and then I'll let you guys uh, get out of here. This has been the Dakota Town Hall podcast. Uh, The election is tomorrow. Thank you for listening to all of these episodes, and thank you, Senator Rounds, for coming on today.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciated the opportunity, and I hope you have a good rest of the day.